Welcome to this message from Eastwood Baptist Church, one church with two locations in Bowling Green and Alberton, Kentucky. To learn more, visit eastwoodbc.org. Now, may the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Holy Word. chapter 9. You said, I thought we were talking about Leviticus. Well, we are. Daniel 9, in particular, kind of comes out of or or has a connection with uh, to the book of Leviticus, particularly in the area that we were talking about last week. Last week, we began looking at how does the Word of God relate to us in Leviticus, particularly in light of Christ, and we were talking about the Jubilee, okay? Okay. So last week, we kind of broke it down into two things, because that's a big topic, like how does the Jubilee impact us in Jesus Christ? And what's the connection there? So last week, we just wanted to understand the Jubilee itself, okay? How it worked, what God had commanded, all those things, how it played out in the life of Israel. And uh, this week, we're going to focus in and actually connect the Jubilee to Jesus, all right? Now, at the end of the day, you may disagree with me. All right. Particularly when we come into Daniel 9, Daniel 9 is one of the most important uh, end times, uh, which is uh, theology. That's called the the study of eschatology. Daniel 9 is one of the most important eschatological uh, chapters in Scripture. All right. And so there are a few different views that a man or woman could take on that chapter. And the one that I've taken uh, will be uh, somewhat apparent in, um, in, in the exposition of this text and the connection of it to Jesus Christ, all right? So this week, the title of this week's message is The Ultimate Jubilee, The Ultimate Jubilee. So let's just do a quick review, all right, to kind of think about uh, a few things. So first, let's think about the sabbatical. That's what we talked about last year. Sabbatical, when we hear that word, we think of what? Yeah, seven days, right? It's a weekly thing, okay? So, So we have six days of work, one day of rest. Well, in, in, in Leviticus 25, that gets applied to years, okay? And so they get to talking about a sabbatical year cycle. So that's the first thing we have to remember when we come and just reviewing from last week is that a sabbatical year, that sabbatical year cycle, seven years, six years of work, and then one year of rest, the ground, the fields, the crops, the entirety of the agricultural life, which they were an agricultural community, was to lie fallow for that year, okay? So that sabbatical cycle, every seven years. That takes us to the second part, though, that we've got to remember, and that is the Jubilee cycle. So the Jubilee cycle is based on the sabbatical cycle. A Jubilee cycle was every 50 years. So they would have seven sabbaticals, seven sabbatical year cycles, um, and, then, uh, and then one year of Jubilee. So 49 years plus one year. That's the Jubilee. Now remember, in the Jubilee, it was in, in essence a double sabbatical. All right? Um, the, the ground wasn't to be worked for two years. And we talked about last week how faith-stretching that would be for any of us. Okay, And it was certainly faith-stretching for them who were hand-to-mouth people. Right? They couldn't go to Kroger. They couldn't go to wherever and just get what, you know, they had to grow it themselves as far as that goes. Of course, there were markets and whatnot, but they were pretty much hand-to-mouth folks. And so for the ground to lie fallow for two years was a big uh, stretch of faith. But remember, we looked there in, in, in Deuteronomy, uh, I'm sorry, Leviticus 25, 
And, and God said in there, don't forget, y'all, I'm going to provide for you. And in the sixth year, I'm going to give you so much. In that 49th year, I'm going to give you so much that it's going to carry you in uh, the 48th year, into the 49th, and even into the 50th. He says, you're going to eat all sorts of stuff because I'm going to, your, your, your grain bins are going to be so full, all right? So that's that jubilee cycle. And then that brings us to the, to the third thing, to just to remember from last week, is that in the jubilee year, three things happened. And these are those three things you can see right there. Debts were considered repaid and forgotten. Remember last week, we, we, it was important for us to say this. In the Jubilee, it wasn't that a debt was forgiven. It was that the debt was considered paid at that point, right? Um, it, it was never a borrowing of money like we think of today with student loans or whatever else. It was actually a lease, right? They were leasing their land, they were leasing themselves, all right? So it never was an actual, they were kind of borrowing money on a lease, all right? So it wasn't debt forgiveness. But if you want to hear more about that, that that's last week. But nevertheless, debts were considered repaid and forgotten in the year of the Jubilee, all right? Also, bond servants were considered no longer indebted and were set free. Like we said last week, a person, um, if, they, if, they, if they were hit hard times financially, they could lease their land to somebody else. Well, if their land wasn't enough to cover their financial need, they could not only lease their land, but they could lease themselves, so to speak, okay, to cover that debt. But in the Jubilee, bond servants were considered no longer indebted and were set free. And then finally, the third thing to remember from last week is that land was returned to original families, all right? So there's debt, there's slavery, so to speak, and there is land. Those three aspects is what this regulated, okay? But how does that relate to Jesus? And here's tonight's truth that I want to hit us with for us to grasp and to just kind of wrestle with tonight is that the ultimate jubilee is found in Jesus. Remember, we're not just studying the book of Leviticus for Leviticus' sake, right? We are now in redemptive history in the new covenant, Christ has come. So we can't just look at Leviticus and, and, and act like Jesus hasn't come yet, okay? We've got to see it in light of Jesus. And what we see in the entirety of Scripture is that the ultimate jubilee is found in Jesus. So three things tonight to think about um, to help us to just kind of break that down and to work through it, all right? Three things. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into those three things. So, Father, I thank you for a chance tonight to just open your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to grasp this. And, Father, I do pray for grace, um, graciousness tonight. Father, if there's someone here maybe who, um, who, is, who is set and convinced of a different viewpoint, Lord, uh, on these things, particularly when it comes to Daniel 9, God, I just pray that there would be a graciousness here, that we would allow one another uh, to, to speak and to, to hear ideas and whatnot as far as that goes. But we thank you, Father, for your word. And I pray, God, that ultimately we will see Christ as our jubilee. God, there may be somebody here tonight who has come in and they are lost in their sin. They've never turned and trusted Jesus. They've never found that forgiveness that's found through Christ. They are a slave to sin. 
Father, I pray that tonight your Holy Spirit would touch their hearts. God, you can use the most um, out-of-the-way passages of Scripture to save people. Because ultimately, even as I read today in in John chapter 5, when Jesus told the Pharisees and the religious leaders that the Scripture, that, that life is not actually found in the Scripture, life is actually found in the Jesus to whom the Scripture points. And so, Father, you can use any passage in this Bible to save a person. And the reason is, is that it's actually Jesus that does the saving. And so, Father, we ask that you would come tonight and you would bless and, and, and move. It's in Christ's name we ask this. And all God's people said, amen and amen. So the ultimate jubilee is found in Jesus. Just given the material tonight, um, I know I said there, there, there could be some dialogue. There probably won't be a lot, okay, just because of the, the nature of tonight, okay, the nature of the content that we're going to cover um, and, and so on and so forth. So, uh, but certainly I will ask folks to read, okay, uh, passages of Scripture. So the first point to think about tonight, uh, the, ultimate, the ultimate jubilee is found in Jesus, all right? And the first point I want to think about with us tonight is that the jubilee calendar stands as the prophetic timetable ushering in the ministry of the Messiah Christ, okay? So the jubilee calendar, that's the thing that's at the backdrop of all this. Now, last week we laid out this beautiful sabbatical and jubilee plan, Remember that? And we were like, wow, that's really cool. And then we asked this question. Did Israel actually obey God? In other words, did they ever actually do it? And the answer was no. No, they never did it. Scholars believe that it never happened. And God told them, if you don't do it, if you don't do what I tell you to do, that he would listen to this language. He would walk contrary to them dude (laughs) he would walk contrary to them in fury he said and would discipline them sevenfold for their sins God would give the land over to Israel's enemies and would scatter the Jews among the nations and then we read this I'm going to just pass out a few passages of scripture right now that way we're ready and you can already be there so here are the ones that we're going to need read tonight Leviticus 26 34 through 35. Who take that for us tonight? Thank you, Michael. Who would take Jeremiah 25, 8 through 11? Jeremiah 25, 8 through 11. Thank you, Miles. And you, how about, um, how about you take 2 Chronicles 36, 20 and 21. All right. 2 Chronicles 36, 20 and 21. All right. So that'll be enough for us for right now. All right. So God said, I'm going to give it all over to your enemies. And then we read this in Leviticus 26, 34 and 35. Michael. Then the land will enjoy seven years all the time that it lies desolate when you are in the country of your enemies. The land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the time that it lies desolate, the land will have the rest it did not have during the Sabbaths you lived in. So there's the threat. I'm going to scatter you. The land's going to get its rest. And what did Israel do with this threat? They ignored it. To their great shame, they ignored it. And eventually, we know just as time went on, eventually, um, you know, the, the kingdom was consolidated. All the tribes were consolidated under King Saul, and then King David, and then King Solomon. But after King Solomon's death, the, 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 
the um, kingdom of Israel divided, right? It divided into the north and into the south, into Ephraim in the north or Israel and Judah in the south, all right? And what did God do? What did God do at this point? Well, he brought Assyria against the north. They ignored God and God made good on his promise here. He brought Assyria against the north and wiped them off the face of the planet. And then what did he do to the south? Well, he brought Babylon, the nation of Babylon, against the south. And he took them into exile. For how long? Now, this is where Jeremiah 25, 8 through 11 comes in. So let's hear that. There you go. So there's that 70 years. I mean, it's was, it was not going to be pretty. Guys, and listen, let us just, this is just a, a rabbit to chase for just a moment. God is serious about his discipline. He loves you enough to discipline you. And sometimes we don't know the severity of that discipline. Right? I mean, oftentimes we, we just take God's graciousness, his mercy for granted, don't we? And that's kind of what Israel did here. Right? They just took it for granted, and God brought out the big whooping stick here. I mean, it just, again, I, I'm speaking to me here. Ben, don't, don't underestimate the discipline of God, all right? But then we jump over to 2 Chronicles 36, where we get a little bit more here um, from uh, just understanding this, right? Again, 2 Chronicles 36, it talks about that 70 years, but he, notice what she's going to read here. It's going to tie it back to the Sabbath and Jubilee cycles. So let's hear that. There you go. So let's think about this for a moment. This is just to get these timetables in our brain here. Why did God decree 70 years of exile? So let's just look at a little graphic here just to kind of work through this and think through it here. So first off, let's think of this number right here, this year, 605 B.C. 605 B.C., because again, we're, we're dealing with history here, all right? 605 B.C. is the year that Babylon defeats Judah and begins exiling Jews. Now, it goes on for decades, right? That's just kind of the first wave, so to speak. But this is the year, 605 B.C., Babylon defeats Judah and begins exiling Jews, all right? The other number to keep in mind is this number here, 1050 B.C. All right, so 1050 B.C., that's the year, and that's an estimate. Notice that, that little approximation squiggle over there, all right? You get into history like this, it's, it's, it's really hard as far as numbers and years to be precise as far as that goes. But in 1050 B.C., that is the year that Israel becomes an official kingdom under Saul, okay? Up to that point, it didn't have a king, all right? It becomes an official kingdom, all right? And so... Between 1050 B.C. and 605 B.C. is approximately 490 years, all right? 
And so 490 years is there, all right? So, so literally, um, there, that, that number 70, 70 weeks, literally 70 sevens, okay? As we think about that there. Um, uh, so 70 years of exile were decreed because 70 sabbatical cycles had been ignored, okay? So that's, that's what that 490 years sort of represents there, okay? Um, so, so there's that part as far as that goes, and we got that um, going on there. So 70 years, 70 sabbaticals between the establishment of the kingdom and the beginning of their Babylonian exile, and then there were 70 years of exile, which brings us into the life of Daniel at this point, all right, the prophet Daniel. And so now we're here in, in Daniel 9. Um, who would read verses 1, 2, and 3? We're going to just pass a few out right here. Daniel 9, verse 1, 2, and 3. Thank you, Shannon. And then who would read Daniel 9, 24 through 27? Daniel 9. Thank you, Gene. All right. So let's hear. So Daniel, if you don't anything about Daniel, Daniel was a prophet of God, okay? Daniel was in exile. He served the government of Babylon and then the government of Medo-Persia. Uh, uh, and their king, King Darius. So he, he served under Nebuchadnezzar and a few others, and then King Darius of Medo-Persia. And here's what we read here in Daniel 9, verses 1 through 3. So Babylon gets overthrown here. The new great power on the scene was Medo-Persia. And Daniel sees this and he's going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, wait, what? what's going on? I mean, this could be our chance. And so he's like, I think I read somewhere where there's like a timetable here for this exile. And so he remembers the prophet Jeremiah. He looks in the prophet Jeremiah, which we just read there. Jeremiah 25 there. And he looks there and he says, oh yeah, it's 70 Years. That's how long we're going to be here in this exile. And so what does Daniel begin to do? He begins to pray. And it's really interesting because God doesn't just answer a prayer like, you know, like I felt a nudge. Right? We ever pray and you just feel a nudge like, oh, God answered that. Or, or sometimes you don't even know. I mean, I don't know if God heard me or not. And then you see down the road, hindsight's twenty twenty. God answered my prayer. Well, God in this instance, like, sent an angel sent the angel Gabriel. So there was no doubt that his prayer was being answered. And so here is what Gabriel tells Daniel. He's praying, God, what are you going to do? God, get us, release us, do all these things. And then here's what Gabriel tells Daniel. Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Yeah. 
There you go. So there in verse 24, what number do you see again? 70. There's 70 again, right? 70 weeks, uh, literally 77s as Gene's translation says here. 70 weeks is what most translations will say. Um, but Gene's translates it actually literally and correctly as 77. So this is not talking about a week of days, but rather a week of years, all right? It's going to be 70 weeks of years until Messiah, the King of the Jews, comes, all right? So 70 weeks of years is how many? That's 70 years times 7. That is 490 years. Again, there's that number again. There's that number. That's the approximate number of years between King Saul and the exile. Again, not down to the letter. Again, just looking back in history. But, but again, it, it, it's the, the first one, certainly approximation here is, is certainly more of a, an exact number. Okay, But I want you to kind of notice the symmetry of God in his timetable. And this is pretty cool. I said last week when I began to see this or when I, someone showed me this, I was like, well, that's pretty cool. All right, so first notice, 490 years or 70 sabbaticals, Israel is ignoring, or Israel as a kingdom, ignoring the the sabbatical and and jubilee cycles. 490 years. And so what does that become then? That becomes 70 years of exile. So 70 sabbaticals, 70 years of exile. And then on the other side of that then, 70 sabbaticals or 490 years, the timetable for Israel's new king, the Messiah Christ, to come on the scene. It's pretty cool, right? That's pretty cool. So you see the symmetry of God in that. And again, going back to what we were talking about other, uh, uh, earlier, that, that what is all of this based on? Well, it's based on the sabbatical jubilee calendar. So the jubilee calendar stands as the prophetic timetable, I would argue, ushering in the ministry of the Messiah Christ. All right? So that's the first thing to think about tonight. The second one is this, is that the work of Jesus fulfilled the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel 9. The, the, the work of Jesus fulfilled the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel 9. So I, I don't have time tonight to go into all the details of that argument or my interpretation of Daniel 9, all right? But if you really want details, I can send you previous teaching notes, I can send you presentations I've done, or I can point you to you know, sermon audio, whatever. But Gabriel here, he lines out six things in verse 24. As, uh, as Gene just read that a moment ago. Six things that, that, that will be accomplished through these 70 weeks that he's talking about. This, this, this coming Messiah. And I would argue that every one of these is accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection, ascension, and return of Jesus Christ. So I would say this Jesus Christ is the ultimate answer to Daniel's prayer. All right? So let's look at the six things here just briefly. Um, the six things the angel says will be accomplished at the conclusion. It'll be done at the end of these seven weeks. First off, transgression will be finished. Now, again, as you think and try to put all this together, how do we, how do we make this fit? How do we make it work? Again, prophecy is always tough in that regard, isn't it? But here's how I like to think about it. Transgression will be finished. Well, the highest sin you can think of is killing the Messiah. There's no greater sin than that. Right? Putting the, 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 the very Son of God to death. So in that sense, transgression is finished. There's no higher sin than that potentially, right? Secondly, sin will be ended. And the way I think of that is that the power of sin is crushed through Jesus. We know that happens, right? He, in that moment, he defeats sin, death, and the devil. Third, he says that iniquity will be atoned for. And that's very straightforward, right? That's the blood of Jesus. 
That's how iniquity is atoned for. Jesus Christ is our atoning sacrifice, our substitutionary atonement. Fourth, he says there in verse 24 that everlasting righteousness will be brought in. Again, that's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Everlasting righteousness brought in through Jesus Christ. Five, he says vision and prophecy will be sealed up. Vision and prophecy will be sealed up. And so, again, how do we, how do we relate this? Well, I would say that Jesus Christ in, is, is the end. He's the climax. He's the culmination of all prophecy. In him, every prophecy finds its fulfillment. And then finally, he says the most holy place will be anointed. And I don't think when he says that, he's talking about the physical temple. I, I think he's talking about the temple of the body of Jesus Christ. All right. So the most holy place will be anointed. The most holy place will be anointed, which, again, I think ultimately he's talking about the body of Jesus Christ. Um, so what is the timeline then for the 70 weeks prophecy as we try to relate it to Jesus Christ? Well, it doesn't immediately begin after the exile, all right? It doesn't begin until what Daniel says in Daniel 9.25, Notice Daniel 9.25. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. So that timeline doesn't begin until the going out of the word to restore and to build Jerusalem. And when was that? Again, you, you know, we rack our brains, we read scholars, we do all those things. Several dates that we could look at. Several dates that we could argue for. Again, we don't have time to look at all those tonight. But I'm convinced that what Gabriel's talking about here is year 457 B.C. 457 B.C. In that year, King Artaxerxes commissioned Ezra to go to Jerusalem. And so you know the book of Ezra. You know what happens there with Ezra and all the things and the reform. And the, the temple's been built and, and all these things. But Ezra's going there to get it really up and going and lend his support to it. And, and particularly in the priestly work. All right. And the case for 457 B.C. is strengthened when you remember that this prophetic timetable is built on the sabbatical jubilee calendar. Now, some very good work has been done on this by scholars researching the sabbatical cycle. And, and, given a, and it sort of gives us a solid idea as to what years the sabbaticals began and ended. And in that research there, as I've read... Um, 457 B.C. actually begins a sabbatical cycle according to a resource that I read. Um, so that's pretty cool, right? I mean, if this is based on the sabbatical cycle, 457 B.C. begins a sabbatical cycle. And the other dates that we would consider, and there's only about four dates that you would consider, none of those other ones land on the beginning of a sabbatical cycle. All right? So, then there is this long week. So, actually, let me... Let me get into the graph here. That way you can kind of see this. And, and, and maybe you've seen this a, a bit of this before when I've spoken on this before. So here's 457 B.C., all right? Commission to Ezra begin. That begins that first sabbatical. Then we have 69 sabbaticals, all right? 69 weeks, he says here, 483 years. And that gets us into A.D. 27, during the life of Jesus. And that, I would argue, begins that 70th sabbatical. All right? So there we are in A.D. 27. In the life of Christ, it begins that 70th sabbatical. Now, again, there would probably be even folks in this room 
who would argue that the, the 70th sabbatical, the 70th week, so to speak, is still future. That God pushed the pause button on this prophetic timetable. But I would argue against that for various reasons. I, I believe the timetable went right on. And so the 70th week actually includes, I would argue, the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. This is when he's, he's doing what we read about in the Gospels here. All right? And that all wraps up in A.D. 33. A.D. 33, when Jesus was crucified and resurrected. Right? That ends the 70th sabbatical. 490 years. Now, in a regular sabbatical cycle... What came after the 49th year? What was it? The Jubilee. So what would we expect to come after this 490 years? Again, prophecy often just does that, right? It just kind of adds a zero to something, right? After 490 years, what would we expect? Not just the Jubilee, but the ultimate Jubilee. So I believe that the work of Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Daniel 9 and brought in the ultimate Jubilee. Now that's again there, AD 34, then, when in one sense, if we're really tracking with timelines and whatnot, would begin, ushers in that ultimate Jubilee. And then, of course, we know, just again to kind of finish out there, the prophecy of Daniel there in Daniel 9, we know that just a little while later in the year AD 70, the second temple is destroyed. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes comes, slaughters a pig on the altar, and all the things that went on with that there uh, in that day and in that age, and desecrates the temple, destroys the temple, uh, and all the things with that. All right. So that's how I would lay out the timeline of how Jesus Christ is connected to the Jubilee. I mean, again, I'm convinced of this. I'm excited you know, when, I, when I see it and when I read it and all those things. And, and you may have to chew on it some more. And again, you may reject it. You say, Ben, I, I don't know about that. That seems a little bit far-fetched to me. But nevertheless, this is, uh, as I've studied Scripture and, and read and all these things, this is, this is where I'm at on this timeline, and I, I think it's pretty cool. It, it really did amaze me when I saw it. It just shows, again, right, the, the, the wisdom of God to me, the, the beauty of how God works um, to bring things about, all right? So that brings us to the final thing tonight then. The third point is that the Jubilee of Leviticus was a type and a shadow of the Jubilee of Jesus. Again, we're tying all this together, right? It's, it's, it's Leviticus in light of the new covenant. It's Leviticus in light of Jesus. And so the Jubilee was certainly there for, for, for national Israel as a way to regulate crops and commerce and all those things. But more importantly, the bigger function that this Jubilee played is that it foreshadowed what was to come in Jesus Christ. Now, Leviticus is law regulating the Jubilee, okay? But we see the prophet Isaiah picking up a Jubilee theme in a prophetic way. In Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. So we're going to pass out two passages of Scripture here. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. Who'd read that for us tonight? Isaiah 61, verses 1, 2, and 3. Thank you, Jeannie. And then I'm going to need Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. You probably know where we're going with this one already. Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Who'd read that one? Thank you, Pearl. All right, let's hear Isaiah 61. 
Yes, ma'am. So there, did you, did you hear some jubilee-like language? You didn't hear the word jubilee, but you certainly heard there talking about, you know, liberty to the captives and, and talked about the land bearing fruit and all those things. Uh, verse 2 talked about proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. So there's certainly some jubilee language in that. And then we skip ahead then to Jesus' ministry. He, he begins his ministry right after the devil has tempted him. You know, those 40 days and 40 nights there that he fasted and the devil tempts him and all those things. He comes out of that after he's regained his strength and has eaten and all those things. And he walks into a synagogue there in Nazareth. And they hand him a scroll, the scroll of Isaiah. And guess what passage he reads? Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. This is the passage of Scripture that begins his earthly ministry. Let's hear it as Jesus read it in Luke 4, 18 and 19. So there's that jubilee language again. And then he sits down, and everybody at this point, I mean, their eyes are fixed on him, right? That's what it says in Luke there. And then Jesus says this, Luke 4, 21, he says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You know what Jesus is saying there? He's essentially saying this, your jubilee is here, right? That's what he's saying there. So... Again, going back to our quick review at the beginning here, what three things happened in the Jubilee of Leviticus? Debts were considered repaid and forgotten. Bond servants were considered no longer indebted and were set free. And land was returned to original families. Now let's parallel that with the ministry of Jesus. Guess what happens in the ultimate Jubilee of Jesus? Our sin debt to God is repaid and forgotten, forgiven. Spiritual bondservants and slaves to sin are no longer enslaved. They are set free. And then finally, the land, the earth itself, is reclaimed for the children of God. We inherit the earth. And so when I see this, and I read this in Leviticus, I can't help but think, of the ministry that God was preparing us for in Jesus Christ. He is our ultimate jubilee. Here's my final prayer for us tonight. May we all experience the jubilation of the jubilee in Jesus.
Hi there, this is Pastor Ben. I have something really important to ask you, but first, I want to say thank you for taking the time to make this digital connection with us through our podcast. I hope the message you just listened to was a blessing, but an even greater blessing than this digital connection would be for you to connect with us in person this coming Sunday at one of Eastwood's two campuses where we get the joy of living life together in Jesus' name. And now for that really important question, which is the most important question you'll ever answer. Where do you stand before God? Now, based on what you've done, the straightforward answer is that you stand guilty and condemned before God. You are a sinner who completely deserves God's wrath forevermore in hell. And I deserve the same thing also. I mean, every person does. Guys, that's terrible news. And even worse is the fact that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to change that. You need a Savior. But I have good news. God loved the world so much that He sent Jesus to be your Savior. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you cannot live, and he stood condemned on the cross, dying the death you deserve. And three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead to prove to everybody that he is indeed the Savior of the world. And now Jesus longs to change your standing before God by making a trade with you. He desires to take what you've earned, which is the wrath of God in hell, and to give you in return what he has earned, which is the blessing of God in heaven. When this trade happens, instead of standing guilty and condemned before God, you will stand forgiven and righteous with the promise of everlasting life. So what must you do to have your standing before God changed? First, admit to God you are a sinner. Second, hate your sins. Turn from them and ask God to forgive you. And finally, turn to Jesus in faith and love, putting your complete hope in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and follow him until the day you die. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, Jesus is ready to make this trade with you. And I pray that you would trust in Jesus and be saved. Thank you again for connecting with us, and I hope to see you soon at Eastwood Baptist Church.